Well, please open up to Genesis chapter 1. You can handle that, right? That's a pretty easy assignment. First book of the Bible, first verse. You do that, I'll get a sip of water here. Well, if you are with us last week, we began a new series in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going through chapter 11. Not all today, but in our sermon series called Beginnings. Today we're going to go through Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25, in a sermon entitled, A Home in the Making. Can I just say, this has been a blast this week, going through Genesis 1. I mean, it has been rich. It's been a lot of fun. I haven't enjoyed myself in sermon prep this much in quite a while. But I'm also keenly aware, there's no way I can do this passage justice in the time that we have. So I'm going to try I'm going to ask for God's grace to do that. But really to frame our time this morning, want to bring to mind a story, a story that you may recall from John chapter 14. Let me set the stage for you. It was the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus had told his closest friends about his imminent departure from this earth. The the time to go to the cross had come. And his disciples were, well, they were anxious. They were confused. And then Jesus spoke these words of reassurance to them sitting at the dinner table. John 14, verses 1 through 3. Quote, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus was about to leave the earth. Why? To prepare a room, to prepare a home. That word that could be translated, to prepare a mansion for his followers. Because he knew, just as the disciples knew, that this earth is a sin-stained, corrupted version of what God had originally created and what will one day be. You and I live, you know it, in a world that desperately needs repair. And by the way, that includes you and me. Jesus went to the cross that night after he spoke these words and he did it for this reason. He did it to redeem a people for himself. You know that. But I want you to catch this as well. He did it to redeem a place for his people as well. That's where we're going this morning. A place where his people could live. A place where his people could rule with him forevermore. Church, are you a little homesick? As I get older, I get homesick. Talking about our future home. I'm talking about heaven. Longing for your true home. There is a place For every believer here, which Christ has prepared, he's preparing that place for you. It's a perfect place. It's a holy place. It's a place fashioned for your ultimate satisfaction and joy in the Savior. It's called the new heavens and new earth. This is what we're driving this morning to this question. What qualifies Jesus What qualifies Jesus to be the 
architect of this new heaven and new earth? What qualifies Jesus to be the general contractor of this new heavens and earth? What qualifies Jesus to be the builder of this new heavens and earth? It's simple. He created the first heavens and earth. And he came to redeem it for his glory and for you. That's what qualifies him. So church, I want you to hear this. Jesus is the expert builder. He knows what he's doing and he's had a little experience at doing it. Exhibit A, Genesis 1. So let's turn there. Let's go back to the very beginning. Starting with verse 1, which Al went through last week. By the way, in his excellent sermon, Genesis 1.1, if you have not heard that, please go back and listen to it, as it truly does form the beginning of this conversation and this narrative. Well, verse 1 of Genesis 1. Let's read it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse, excuse me, from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, or may your footnote, sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the sea, and let the birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let me read just one more verse. This is where we're driving. We'll hit it next week, but I want you to hear in the context of this narrative. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Church, let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself through your creation. But not just that, you have revealed yourself specifically through your word. Lord, you have a will, you have an agenda for us this morning in this very passage for your very people. We ask that you would, by your grace, deliver that to our hearts. And may the result be worship this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, our theme this morning, church, is simply this. I'll put it on the screen. God created and ordered this world to be our home. Now, when you hear the word God, I want you to think God the Father, oh yeah, but also God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit has created and ordered this world to be your home. He personally created it, oh yeah, and he perfectly, excuse me, perfectly ordered it. Let's start with point one. God personally created this world. Genesis 1.1, not going to re-preach Al's message last week. But let me just say this. When we say God created this world, it's personal, church. It's very personal. God personally spoke the world into being. Number two, he did it with you and me in mind. In other words, it was doubly personal. Let's start with that first point. God spoke the world into existence. No, God did not create the world through some impersonal evolutionary process. No, he speaks the world into being. What's more personal than one's breath and one's voice? If I were up here this morning and I couldn't see you, which is often the case with these lights, but I knew you, you know what? I could still figure out who you were. How? By your distinct voice. I would know who you are. Well, God spoke the world into being. What does God, the Father's voice, Sound like church. It sounds like Jesus. If you recall from last week, it's Jesus who is called in John 1, 1 through 3, the word of God. He is the word of God. And God the Father used Jesus, the word of God, to carry out his creative works through the spoken word. And he brought the world into being. See, what is being described in this text is a world which is uniquely 
personally and powerfully created, spoken into existence by our creator and our redeemer. Each day of creation is introduced how? By this phrase, and God said. That is followed up by the divine command, let there be, you fill in the blank, light, and onward and onward. But God doesn't stop there, does he? He commands, and then he gives us the results. God gives us the results of his commands. He says what? And it was so. In other words, it was exactly as God willed it and commanded it. Jesus spoke, and it was. God spoke, and it was. You understand there's no chasm, is there, between what God speaks and what he does. There's no gap. There's no separation. What God speaks occurs. What he says he's going to do, he does. And he does it perfectly. But not so much with you and me, is it? I mean, me, I speak, and I hope to do it. Sometimes I speak, and I never do it. Sometimes I speak, and it just comes out all wrong. I mean, that, that's my life story in English, Spanish, you name it. You know, I got it up here. When it comes out, whoa, what was that? That's not what I had in mind. Oh, church, that's not God. He speaks, and it is exactly as he intended. And it's all good. It's perfectly good. You see, not only are God's given, not only God gives his personal report of creation, you know what else he does? He gives us his evaluation. By the way, in the scripture, whenever God gives an evaluation of anything, yeah, take note. God here is evaluating his own work. And what does he say? Oh, it's a common refrain. We read it many times. And it was good. It was good. It was good. What does God mean, though, when he says it was good? Well, first and foremost, it's good because God created it. His creation is a reflection of himself. It's a reflection of his power. It's a reflection of his perfection. There was no corruption in God's original creation. It was all good, and it was all holy. But I believe it's called good for another reason as well. And that leads to the next subpoint. B. God created this world with you and me in mind. You see, this whole narrative here, it's driving to the pinnacle of God's personal creation. What's the pinnacle? Now, who's the pinnacle of his creation? It's creation of man, male and female. Verse 26. We read it earlier. Those who will inhabit the world in which God personally created. In other words, the whole creation account is the story of a king. It's a story of a king preparing his kingdom for the habitation and rule of his human vice regents. Now, if you're in youth, parents, I know our youth and teens here, you know that we've been studying this past year the theme of the kingdom of God, right? We've been looking at the, the theme, kingdom of God, as developed in scripture. And if you recall, teens, you can help me out here. Let's give a definition of the kingdom of God. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. You catch that? What's the kingdom of God? Oh, it's God's people. That's you and me, all those who are in Christ Jesus, in God's place. 
That place, we're seeing it this morning. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25. The place that God originally created for his people to dwell and yes, to rule. But why does that matter? I got it, Corb, that's Genesis 1. We live on the other side of Genesis 3, the fall of man, right? We know this world as God created it. Well, it's a little tattered, a little tainted. It's in ruined, you could say, at least partially, yes, by sin. You know that, I know that. We live in what we call a fallen world. It's not how it once was. But you know what? The Israelites knew that as well. Recall who's writing this. This is Moses writing to his people, the Israelites, before they're going to go into the promised land of Canaan. The generation that's about to go in has been in this wilderness for 40 years. Recall the picture that Al put up last week? Just that barren landscape. That's all that they know. And Moses writes the Pentateuch. He writes the first book, Genesis. Imagine for a moment, if we can, if you were living during the time of Moses, who wrote this book, humanly speaking, and all you've known is that wilderness. All you've known your whole life is camping out, eating manna waffles and manna bagels, uh, to quote Keith Green there, an old song. All you've known is eating quail. A church, I like camping. You know I like camping. I like it as a recreation, not as a way of life, okay? That's all they had known is camping. They never farmed a day in their life. How could you? They've been in a barren desert wilderness on the move. And now they're about to enter into and settle into the promised land of Canaan. It's going to be a new home. I'm sure most of you here, you've, you've moved into a new home at one point or another in your life, right? Maybe you've probably, a lot of you have moved to a new city. Some of you here have even moved, I know you have, to a new country. What happens you're about to move? You got questions. You got a lot of them. Well, the Israelites had those same questions, I believe. They're about to go into this promised land. Questions like, would this land be suitable for me and my family? Suitable for a bunch of nomadic shepherds. Would this home be a place where I could truly settle down? Where I could thrive? Where I could grow? Where I could see the fruit of my labor and my hands? Is this a place where I could feel safe? There's a lot of other foreign, weird-looking people around there. Can I really live here? I believe that Genesis 1, part of what Moses is doing, what God is doing, is reminding his people that their personal covenant-making God is more than able to provide and fashion a dwelling place for his people under his providential care and providential ordering. For God not only personally created this world, but he ordered it just so for you and me. And I believe God is reminding us the same this morning, church. He's created this world and he's ordered it, every detail of it, for us to thrive. In other words, God has optimized the world in which he created for his glory and for our good. And that leads to point two, that God not only personally created this world to live in, but point two, God perfectly ordered this world. I want to show you the pattern we see here in Genesis. Any good commentary will show you this pattern, but it's worth looking at to understand this first chapter. First of all, I believe verse one is not just a summary statement. It's sequential. 
Although God created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo, Al spoke about that last week, the earth originally was not initially suitable for mankind. I'm not saying it was bad morally. It wasn't. God created it. I'm not saying it fell in disrepair. Simply saying, we read verse 2, that it was not hospitable for his people yet. In other words, there was more work yet to be done. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Look at this next phrase, too. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In other words, the world was created initially, and it was formless and empty. It was unformed, and it was unfilled. The Hebrew word, therefore, without form, it's the same word used elsewhere by Moses to describe the Sinai Peninsula, the, the desert they lived in. This barren landscape without form or distinction. That was the world they knew well. See, if you were back in verse 2, if you could see your native homeland in verse 2, I mean, you'd have to have what, night goggles and x-ray vision because there's no light, right? Just say you could. You wouldn't recognize it. It had no form. It had no shape. There was nothing firm to stand on. No ground to stand on. There was no air to breathe. Just a watery, cold, lifeless abyss. All that to say the world was inhospitable and inhabitable for the crown of God's creation. For you and me, human beings. And something needed to be done. Thus we read that curious phrase, the Spirit of God is hovering. What's that, what's that mean? The Spirit of God was hovering over the watery world. It's as if God is saying, yes, and God will get it done. Church, that's what verses 3 through 25 are all about. God will get it done. We read verse 2, the earth was what? It was without form and void. So what does God do? Days 1 through 3, he forms. Days 4 through 6, he fills. And that's the pattern. We've got it up there on the screen. This is the pattern that helps us understand this creation narrative in chapter 1. But as God is forming and filling the earth, he's also doing other stuff as well. I want to press in there a little bit as well to reveal God's divine ordering of creation. You see, God isn't just like, okay, we know he's he's creating a house. He formed it. Now he's going to fill it. He's going to bring in all the boxes, you know? Just put them all the boxes in the house. He's just going to fill it up with boxes. You've moved probably. You've been there, done that, Right? It's not like God just forms it. I'm just going to put a bunch of creatures on that and they're just going to duke it out in the survival of the fittest contest. We're just going to see what happens. That's not what we see here. No, God creates the house and then he puts every box exactly in the room in which he wants it, exactly in the place in which he wants it to fulfill the very purpose for which he designed it. And then he labels the box and tells us what kind it is, right? That's what God is doing here in this Text. Ten times. You probably caught it when we read it. Ten times we were told that God created living things according to its kind or kinds. What's the result? It's an amazing world of biological diversity and, yes, distinction as well. But we got a little problem with that today in our culture, don't we? We have come to see biological differences in gender, 
something fluid. Biological differences in gender, something to overcome. That's not how God presents it here, church. We've come to see in our culture that actually what we see is a blurring, a distinction of lines between human and the animal world. As if we're all the same and all have the same rights and are no different. Church, we are. There is distinction. There is kind. Because God is kind and he is good. And that's what we see as well here in this narrative. God is separating and he's creating according to its kind. And with that, there are built-in limitations and prescribed boundaries. Not as God's cruelty, but it's for his glory. But it's also for human flourishing as well, as we'll see. And by the way, all this ordering, it's good for science too. You understand, God brings order. He establishes habitats. He creates boundaries and species. Sets forth repeatable patterns of day and of night and of seasons, patterns of reproduction and multiplication, things that can be clearly observed by science. In other words, God's orderly creation sets the framework for good science. Do you see it? It's there. The whole creation narrative shows how God works through an orderly process of six days to form and to fill the earth. Now, with that in mind, let's look at each of the... the, Excuse me, whoa. What I say doesn't always come out as I desire, right? Case in point. Let's look at the uh, specifics. I can never say that word, church. Let's look. Days one through three, God forms day one. On the first day, look at verse three. God created light. Light for man to see by and direct our step. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus, he is the light of the world who stepped into darkness and created the very light by which we can see both physically and spiritually as well. But God gave another gift on that day as well. Did you catch it when you read it? It's easy to kind of just go right over it and miss it. He created time. Time as a gift to man. Time by which to order our day. Time to work, day. Time to rest, night. Time to number our days aright, as the psalmist says. And it's Jesus who stepped into time, who stepped into darkness to redeem us that we may not live in eternity under his combination and wrath. It's God who created time and then stepped into it to redeem us for all of eternity. Let's look at day two, verse six, the second day. God separated the water below, the oceans, the seas, from the water above, the clouds. And what does he call that in-between space? He calls it heaven. He calls it sky. In other words, God made Earth's atmosphere on that second day. What was he doing? He's giving us air to breathe, oxygen, just the exact amount that we need. I don't get it all, but I know we can't live on any planet, okay? Naturally speaking. No, he crafted this planet, this earth for you and I with just the right amount of air molecules for us to breathe. He uniquely fitted our atmosphere for man to live. Look at day three, verse nine. 
We're at day three. He's still forming, and there's still more work to be done. But God's getting it done, isn't he? The earth has light so far. We know that. We know it has water, and now it has oxygen. But you're human. What else do we need here? We're missing something. It's called dry land, right? It's called earth. Well, we're just amphibious creatures. Now, we try to be. I mean, I love scuba diving, but you know what? When I put on that heavy wetsuit and those weight belts and the tank, I mean, I just said, there is nothing natural about this at all. This is weird. I was not created to live in the ocean. I like going down occasionally. That's not where I'd have it. I'd have the land. God created land on this third day. He gives a place where we can walk. We can run. We can stand. We can jump. Or we can salsa. Where you can salsa and I can watch and appreciate it. Yeah. A place where we can kneel and worship. A place where we can jump. That's what God gave us on that day. But he gave us more than that. He gave us rocks. He gave us minerals. He gave us gems. And yes, coal. Even oil. It's kind of like fighting words today, aren't they? Yeah, he gave it all to us, right? In the earth. He gave us energy sources and building materials for man to be industrious. He gave us super magnets in the earth. I'm not sure what they are. I know my son loves to find them. Super magnets, that's what they build computer chips with. That's why you got a smartphone today. Why I think it's getting smaller and smaller. He gave us all of this. Not just that, he gave us diamonds to delight in. But it wasn't done yet. He's not done yet. We're still on the third day. The earth was still barren and brown. There were no living creatures. So, to prepare the way for his living creatures, God gave us vegetation. That doesn't sound very exciting. No, he he gave us life. The earth sprouted vibrant green. And there was food to taste. How there was food to eat. But God didn't give us food for the mouth or fields for harvest. This wasn't a merely functional thing. It's more than that. God gave us a feast for the eyes and the senses. You know what he gave us on that day? He gave us flowers. It's my favorite flower. It's called the frangipan. I love it not just how it looks. I love it for the way it smells, its scent. God gave us beauty. This flower, it's, it, I love it. I, I kids see me go in the courtyard and, and, and pick it almost every day this time of year because it only blooms this time of year. And it reminds me of my wife because it always blooms around our anniversary, which is this time of year. And I think about her. I think about my mom as well. If you went to Hawaii and got a flower necklace or lei, it'd probably be made of this flower right here. My mom and I took many trips to Hawaii in my youth. I think about Hawaii. I think about my mom. So I picked this. You know why? You've heard the phrase. Sometimes you got to stop and smell the roses. I need to stop and smell the frangipan. I can get really functional. God created a world of beauty, of scent. He created it for us to enjoy and to give him glory. God created seeds. The vegetation would multiply and provide for successive generations What we have here is a picture of bounty, of abundance, not of scarcity. 
And now God begins to fill what he has formed in the first three days. That takes us to day four, verse 14. And God gave us the sun, the moon, and the stars. Yes, it's a little curious. We know from day one there already was light. We don't know exactly what that light was like, but there was light. So let there be light. But the purpose of these lights, which he formed, wasn't only that we could see, that we could mark the days, that we could mark seasons, that we could mark years by their or the earth's celestial orbit. He gave us the sun, moon, and stars. They form the calendar of man. If you read the Old Testament, you will read about the appointed feast in which to worship God. They were according to the seasons, which were marked by these stars. He gave the sun for photosynthesis. He gave the sun for sunrises and sunsets. We live in Florida. We can catch the sunrise in the Atlantic. If you want to, you can go across to the Gulf Coast and catch the sunset. He gave us stars to provide the way to navigate by sea or land our long treks. But you know what? Even that's pretty functional, isn't it? You understand, God gave us the stars for awe. Get outside of Miami. There's all this light pollution. You ever been outside in the rural countryside and looked up and see the stars in a bright, brilliant, clear evening? What's response? Oh, it's amazement. It's wonder. It's worship. It's Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Right? Day by day, night by night, they pour forth speech. See what, you see what God did? He spoke the world in existence, and now this world is speaking back to him. And it's saying glory, hallelujah, Amen. to our God and creator. That's what the stars do for us. It's a summons to worship God and to behold the power and the glory as we see the intricacies and the immensity of the universe. But he's not done yet. Day five, verse 20. And God filled the waters. He created in day two with living creatures, great and small. And he did it for his pleasure. See, you know there's sea creatures living thousands of feet below the ocean? There's creatures that have been living there that we're just now in the last few years discovering. They've been there for millennia. God put them there. God delighted in putting them there. And we only now have the technology and the submersibles to go down and to see what God has created at these amazing depths where there's very little to no light. And yet there's a whole ecosystem. There's this weird-looking fish. I don't always get it. I don't know what God's doing. He created them for his glory and his pleasure. And they're there. And they're living. I assume they're happy as well. He created according to their kind to live there to give him glory. Sea creatures. But he also filled the sky as well, which he had formed in day two. He filled it with birds. Think about it. With birds came sounds. And with sound came music. On this day, there was music for the first time ever in the creation of the world. There was music. That's, that should be an amen to many of us here who love music. He gave us music. He gave us birds. Sounds to light the ear. He gave us peacocks to spread their feathers and colors. Saw Jeremy and Nika the other day running around our neighborhood. I don't know if you're chasing or following the peacock. I'm not sure, but we got a new one in our neighborhood. 
He gave us the great wing birds, like the eagle, as a prototype for the airplane. Oh, he did so much more. And then we read, God blessed them, meaning he multiplied them. And now we come to day six. Look at verse 24. God filled the earth, which he created on day three. And then fish crawled out of the ocean and evolved into land mammals. No, <laughs> that's not what it says. <laughs> the seniors were staying awake, paying attention. Okay, I'm a little, getting a little worried there. Whoa, where'd that one come from? No, God, by his word and divine fiat, put land animals right there on day five, or excuse me, day six, to inhabit and dwell the earth. You read it, land mammals, livestock, creeping things. I'm not sure if you put the palmetto bug there at the time, or is that a result of the fall? I'm not sure. I have to look into that one. But there were creeping things as well. And these living creatures feasted on the multiplying and abundant vegetation created by God. Animals. Give us animals to bear the burden of our work. He gave animals, some of them to be companions for man. I don't know if you're a cat lover or a dog lover, but he gave animals for that as well. And I believe in God's redemptive scope, he gave animals as a provision, sacrifice for sin. It wasn't the ultimate sacrifice, they pointed to Christ. But as you read the Old Testament, there are animals for sacrifice of sins. You know what else? He gave animals to eat with the coming of sin and death. All that was God's gracious provision. God left no detail untouched. And he did it all in six days. I believe the text most plainly argues for a 24-hour day. He did it all in six days to model and set forth a rhythm of work and rest that would imitate him as we rule over his blessed creation. Why? So that we, church, as God's people, would worship him in the home of his making. Let me wrap it up. What does this mean for us today? living in a fallen world. We see it, we see it in part. We see a a dim shadow of what once was and will be. I want you to hear this. Your Jesus, your Savior, is an expert builder. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in your life. He knows how to build a home. Christ knows how to build a church. He knows how to order your life in such a way that you may thrive and grow and give him glory. You see, as Christians, we come to this text not only to worship God as creator, amen, we do that, but we come to this text to worship him as creator and redeemer. This world is fallen. We sang about it. This world is broken. We're broken. Christ has come to make what was broken whole. 
Christ has come to make beauty from ashes. You see, Christ, our God, our creator, our redeemer, is not just a builder. He is a rebuilder. He's not just a creator. He's a redeemer and restorer. He's proven it in his creation, in coming to earth, in time and space, in redemption. And church is going to prove it once again when he returns to consummate all of history that we may inhabit, inhabit the place for which he created us, the new heavens and new earth where we would dwell with him forevermore. Amen. Worship band, please come on up. Let's sing the last song that we sang. Great is the Lord. And let me pray as we prepare to respond. Well, dear Lord, I think we're most of us aware this morning that this isn't simply a message, but we merely glean knowledge. Oh, it's more than that. This creation account is a summons to worship, to worship our creator and redeemer. So Lord, I pray right now, as we're about to stand, that you would inhabit our praise, that you would fill us, and that we would respond in a way that is commensurate to what we've just heard. Oh, Lord, expand our vision. Open our eyes and ears. And may we worship you as our creator, as our redeemer, as one with hope in you, the one who's come and the one who's returning to make all things new. Amen. Let us stand, church, and let us respond.